0: I don't think you can teach somebody to be problem-oriented instead of product-oriented. I think some people just inherently have this restlessness inside of them where they've identified a problem they can't stop thinking about. That's something that I think has to strike you. But what we try to do is prepare you so when that does happen in your life that you have a set of tools and a set of mindsets and frameworks available
1: to you. and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way. To help you build a highly scalable business, and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompanycom forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, F- Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am talking with and learning from David Chantal. David is an award-winning professor of strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management. He's also the best-selling author of a fabulous book called The Human Element, Overcoming the Resistance that Awaits New Ideas. Now, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an innovator inside your business, you will well know this feeling. Something that makes complete sense to you is being resisted by everybody at every turn, all over the place. It's often why people leave larger businesses and go to smaller start up their own business, whether they be, they feel less resistance. And it's true for a while, but then if that business is successful, some of these elements will creep back in. He's been involved in entrepreneurship, design and innovation for over 20 years. And his work has led to the creation of over 300 products, services, and new ventures around the world. And as we dive into his book, I mean, some of the things that come up are, there is always this sort of inertia to new ideas, And then there's the amount of effort that you have to put in. And there is, you have to capture some emotion to make change happen. And there's this, what he calls reactance, which we'll go on to describe. How do you create success? How do you showcase success stories? How do you provide training and support? How do you engage early adopters? How do you celebrate small wins? Listen and adapt, patience and persistence. So fantastic conversation with David about how to take your idea and move the organization to adapt the change. I learned a lot. I'm sure you will too. I'm David Schoenthal, professor
0: of strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management.
1: And what do you do there?
0: (laughs) Uh, A couple of different things. I chair our Entrepreneurship Center, which is looking after all entrepreneurship-related activities at Kellogg. And I teach classes on new venture creation, healthcare innovation, design thinking, and creativity. You work with a number of VCs as well? True. So I'm an operating partner at Seven Wire Ventures, which is a digital health focused venture fund here in Chicago. And then I'm also a global advisor to a venture fund called Design for Ventures based in Tokyo, Japan, which focuses on Japanese startups.
1: And what's your liquidity returning to the marketplace after a volatile 12 months or things still quite volatile in terms of Fundraising
0: on the seven wire side, we were we're lucky enough that we just closed or about to close fundraising on our third vehicle. So we are fortunate enough to have investable resources at a time where I think liquidity is a little bit tight. Fortunately, also digital health and consumer focused digital health continues to be in strong demand. And so I feel lucky that our thesis is focused on an area which is continuing to experience growth and traction. Unlike, I think, some of the generalist funds out there that are having a bit of a tougher time.
1: Fab, how do you teach entrepreneurship? Mm.
0: Well, I mean, this is a question that comes up again and again, right? Can you teach entrepreneurship? I would say that you can teach frameworks and tools and methods for bringing ideas to market faster and iterating on them and testing them and being disciplined about how you do it. But I don't think you can teach somebody to be an entrepreneur. I don't think you can teach somebody to be resilient. I don't think you can teach somebody to be problem-oriented instead of product-oriented. I think some people just inherently have this restlessness inside of them or they've identified a problem they can't stop thinking about. That's something that I think has to strike you. But what we try to do is prepare you so when that does strike you, when that does happen in your life, that you have a set of tools and a set of mindsets and frameworks available to you that you can take action on it and likely be more successful uh, and fail faster and cheaper than you would if you tried it without having those frameworks handy. And I should also say that startup entrepreneurship is only one flavor of entrepreneurship. It tends to get the outsized amount of the attention, tends to be the cover of Inc. Magazine and Entrepreneur Magazine, but there are lots of different ways of becoming an entrepreneur many of which are lower risk than startups. And we try to cover the whole gamut of those options when we teach entrepreneurship and offer entrepreneurship programming at Kellogg.
1: And what do you, do you call that entrepreneurship, or do you call it something else or- I mean, I think there's
0: entrepreneurship in the sense that people can be entrepreneurial inside of larger organizations. But I'm speaking more specifically around like entrepreneurship through acquisitions. So people that want to buy a small business and grow it is their path to being an entrepreneur versus coming up with something from scratch. And that is an increasingly popular path in the United States, Uh, also abroad, Europe, parts of Asia. And right now we're in this moment in time where there are a lot of baby boomers who have built small businesses that a lot of their personal net worth and liquidity is tied up in those assets. And the only way that they'll be able to retire is to transact those small businesses, which are typically far too small for private equity to be interested. So a young, entrepreneurially minded professional, somebody coming out of an MBA program could be the perfect person to buy that business and grow.
1: And is that. Is that slightly different? Is it more operational and execution focused than than sort of building a minimal viable product? Because there's a business already there. And you're saying, okay, well, how do we give this how do I give this some gas rather than come up with something?
0: Yeah. So we've had students that have started in startup entrepreneurship and become eventually acquisition entrepreneurs. We've also had acquisition entrepreneurs eventually launch startups. Startup. So I, I don't know that it's binary, but I will say that people that tend to find entrepreneurship through acquisition more readily or sooner are ones that don't necessarily have a particular passion for a problem, but their passion is growing a business. Their passion is like applying software to an old line industry to scale it and remove costs, to take something that is highly localized and expand its market by opening up channels or putting different things together to create growth. So these are are individuals that are passionate about growing businesses and growing enterprises. They might not be as focused on like, I'm going to do this, but only in healthcare. I'm going to do this and only in pipes and home siding. They're a little bit more agnostic about the business and much more focused on what's a business that can be grown.
1: Yeah, and and more of the scale-up part of the journey than the startup journey.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably right.
1: And what are some of the top five challenges and what tools do you deploy?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, again, back when I first started teaching at Kellogg, which is 11 years ago now, prior to joining Kellogg, the way we used to teach entrepreneurship generally. I mean, first of all, we didn't have that many classes on entrepreneurship. And many of them were effectively business plan writing classes. So you would teach somebody how to create a gorgeous, strategy document you know 40 pages of I mean in some cases they were like physically printed and bound and it would teach you like what a startup might have in terms of finance what it might have in terms of operations marketing but effectively what it was was a hypothetical document on what might happen to a business that you begin to build and over the last 11 years I mean pretty quickly 10 years ago a little bit more we started changing how we taught and I think this is true of both startup entrepreneurship and to some extent true of other paths in entrepreneurship, which is we teach it less like a theory or a strategy class. We teach it much more like science, like basic science. We employ the scientific method. You have a hypothesis about what you think the world might need. If that hypothesis is true, there are products and services that can be created and a business model that can be deployed, but they're hypotheses. So just like in chemistry, what you do is you design an experiment to find out if your hypothesis is true. And you find the fastest and cheapest way to find out if there's a there there. And once you have confidence that it is, and once the experiments start to prove positive, then increase your investment, increase your likelihood of success by growing those experiments or scaling those experiments and doing it in this very sort of evolutionary way versus like presenting a 40 page business plan that will probably not survive its first contact with customers because it's all theory. So instead of teaching you how to flawlessly build a business from day one, our job we feel is to teach you how to teach you methods to get it wrong as quickly and as cheaply as possible, knowing that if you are around long enough, you will probably figure it out.
1: (laughs) Okay. Now that's good. I know you using Sort of Alex Osterwilder's business model canvas and...
0: Yeah, there's a bunch of tools. I mean, Alex's Business Model Canvas is kind of one of the foundational tools. Steve Blank and, and his Lean Startup Frameworks are obviously really important. But then there's other things like Bob Mesta and Clay Christensen's jobs to be done. theory and frameworks that work there. I'd like to think our friction theory framework has a role to play as one of these tools in the toolbox, which is once you've come up with an idea, how do you introduce that idea to the world in such a way that it is likely to gain traction? versus what we generally find, which is the great ideas, no matter how helpful they are, and no matter how beneficial they are, will always face resistance. And sometimes we don't understand why. So what we've tried to do with our students is effectively build a, a toolbox of frameworks and theory that help them navigate the world they're trying to build.
1: Is there a UX for the friction, your friction framework in the same way? Or there, there are tools.
0: There's something we call a friction report or a friction map, which, like Alex's business model canvas, is something that you blow up poster size and you put on the wall. And effectively, you note your hypotheses. In Alex's case, you note your hypotheses about what you think the value propositions ought to be and who the customers ought to be and what the channels will be. And as you get out in the world, you update your thinking, you update that framework with. You know, things that you believe to be true, what's actually true and what's false, and you modify and evolve that that model as you go. Same is true of, of friction theory. We suggest you put these maps on the wall and hypothesize about where you think you might encounter certain types of friction. And what we know about friction is that it's easier to address when it's forecasted versus when it presents itself and has to be remedied.
1: Huh, okay, give me an example of that.
0: So, well, there are four types of friction that we talk about in the book. One is inertia which is a human beings, and by the way, I should say the book is called The Human Element. And the reason it's called The Human Element is that oftentimes what stands in the way of adopting a new idea is the very humans we're trying to help. There are psychological forces and behavioral forces at play that work against our efforts as innovators. And we've identified four types of friction in this book, myself and Lauren Nordgren, who's my co-author and a a psychologist colleague at, at Kellogg. The first friction is inertia, which is a human being's overwhelming tendency to stick with what they know or what is familiar, despite the fact that what is familiar is known to them to be inadequate, right? Like I know that using spreadsheets to manage my books is probably not the best way to do it, but man, I've built all these models and I've got an assistant who's working with me and to like roll out QuickBooks or something else just feels like a pain. So like, I'll do it tomorrow or I'll do it next week, which effectively means they'll do it never. So that's friction number one. Friction number two is effort, the perceived or real amount of effort required to make a change. So this could be how much physical effort is required to bring in a new idea, How much cognitive effort, like how much ambiguity is there to the process, how much cognitive load are we placing on people. The more we are causing people to think, the more we're causing people to navigate ambiguity, the more the friction of effort will present itself, preventing them from getting on board. The third is emotion, which are the undesired negative feelings we cause in others. In fact, the very people we are trying to help, sometimes in an effort to make their life easier, we actually cause them anxiety, we cause fear, we cause other types of distress, and if we're not paying attention to that, we can inadvertently do it. And then the fourth, which is uh, a phenomenon that we see a lot in the U.S. and certainly in parts of Europe, is something we refer to as reactance, which is a human being's aversion to being told what to do by others. Doesn't matter how good your idea is. If I feel like you're pushing your idea on me, I'm going to push back because human beings don't necessarily like to be told what to do by other people. So we we have created some tools around this and what we ask teams to do is think, all right, where might you experience some inertia-related friction and from whom? Where might you experience some effort-related friction and from whom? And where might you experience some emotion and reactance? And and so with our portfolio companies at Sevenwire, for example, we spend a lot of time with our portfolio companies on these. And in the world of digital health, which often requires people to change their behavior or change the way they live or change a routine, despite the fact that I know that eating a certain way is bad for me or not getting this kind of exercise or this kind of sleep is not necessarily good for me, even though I know this and I know I ought to change, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'll, I will. And so we work with our portfolio companies to design ways to remove some of that friction that stands in the way of adoption.
1: In Peter Atias' new book, I think it's that 50% of people who have a first heart attack in the US die. The other 50% who don't die, only 15% of them change their behavior. And so you're like, even you get a wake up call, it's still not enough for people to go, oh, I need to change what I do.
0: And that's like a really, that's an extreme example. The advent of statins makes it easy to be like, nah, I'll just take a pill and not change my diet. I mean, that's sort of the attitude of most. I'm going to follow the path of least friction, even though even though the statin effectively treats the symptoms, it doesn't treat the underlying behavioral reasons these are happening. So people will choose the path of least resistance, even though they know it's not the right one. In fact, another healthcare example that just came up a couple of weeks ago I was traveling in Asia, giving a talk to a company, pharmaceutical company that makes a drug that treats uh, the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, so IBS, which affects millions of people around the world. And in the case of irritable bowel... I won't get into the details. People sometimes have trigger foods. There are certain types of foods that they eat that causes enormous distress for their gastrointestinal system. And you can sort of imagine what that means. And some of the GI programs out there help people identify, what are my trigger foods? And obviously, when you find a trigger food like coffee or meat or whatever it might be, the idea is to avoid the foods that cause yourself intestinal distress. Like that doesn't sound like, a revelation that makes a lot of sense. I was talking to one of the employees of the company that makes a drug that effectively treats the symptoms of IBS. And I asked this person, I was like, how did you get on this adventure? And he told me this story about how he has IBS. And through a process of methodical journaling and and learning about himself, what he realized, and, and he lives in Asia, one of the things he realized is two trigger foods that really cause him enormous stomach distress, predictably, are eating red meat, steak and rice i'm like oh okay so you know these things about yourself like how has that changed your behavior like when you get home at night what do you make yourself for dinner he said well i know what i should make myself is a salad like i should eat you know leafy greens and fibrous fruits and vegetables i said okay but what do you make he's like well i make steak and rice i'm like what you obviously know that this is the thing that's causing you a problem he said yeah but like when i get home after a long day grilling a steak and making rice is easy going to the store and buying fresh fruits and vegetables and coming home and washing them and chopping them and preparing them. So like, this is a person who works in the industry. He knows exactly what he needs to do. He knows what the result is going to be when he eats the thing that's going to cause him these problems. But yet, because it's easier, because it's less effortful, he chooses this thing that obviously gives him trouble because it's the path of least effort. And so We oftentimes underestimate as innovators how much effort people will actually put into achieving a different outcome. And we think that if they see the benefit in our idea or if they see all the merit in using this new software or this new tool, people will change the way they live and work in order to adopt it. And we grossly underestimate just how strong the the friction of effort actually is.
1: Wow. What it does for me is it echoes, there's an echo of, I don't know if you read the jolt effect by the guys who did the uh, challenger sale. They reckon 60% of sales, you know, companies don't move forward. And not because the individual who's the buyer doesn't believe that this is good for the company. There's just something about them personally, like either a fear or an inertia or a change that they're going to have to do. And he said, that, that then salespeople double down on that, but you don't, you understand it's good for you. And they're like, no, they've They've already done that what you haven't done is you haven't addressed any of them personally. Oh,
0: we have we have so many stories in this book about this very topic. And, and the other crazy thing about this Dominic is the way it will show up to a salesperson, like the resistance won't show up as, boy, you're making me fearful of how I'm going to champion this internally. Man, you're making me anxious about the amount of effort I'm going to have to put in to convince others and the amount of personal risk I'm going to take to put my name next to an unknown business. They won't say that because those are like, those require somebody admit a little vulnerability. They admit a little bit of fearfulness. Human beings typically don't want to put that forward. So what's the excuse they're going to give a salesperson? It's too expensive. Or my board won't buy in. Like they're going to try to shut the conversation down as quickly as possible, but it's almost never about cost. It's almost never about the first reason they give you. But when you pull back the layers you come to understand, like they just really are—they—they they have a hard time. They've used up a lot of personal capital on new ideas this year. They've maybe got one more card to play, and they're not sure that this is the one to attach their personal brand to. But if you know that that's the risk, if you know that that's the friction—that's an emotional friction—if you know that that's the friction, you can work with that internal champion to defuse that friction. But when it's when they say, "Oh, it's too expensive," and the salesperson's like, "Oh, well, I guess it's too expensive," and walk away.
1: Or they say I'll give you a discount. Which then they go, "Well, I I gave him a discount, and it didn't work. Still, he still didn't buy it."
0: Right, because it's not about the emotional friction. It's be they think it's an economic argument when that's just the fastest way for the the internal person to 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 push back. So, one of the things we've got a whole list of tools. One of the things that we recommend salespeople do in particular is just sort of take a step back when you're meeting some resistance from the internal champion and say, "Like, hey, forget about this product or this service. The last time you." whoever the buyer is or or internal champion last time you really had a difficult time deciding whether or not to buy a new product or service and ultimately decided to do it or not do it. Like tell me the story about the last thing that you did that worked But also the last couple of things that that really went a different direction than you were expecting. And they're going to tell you stories about like, well, they told me it was going to do this. And when I brought it to my board, it turns out that the economic argument they made didn't hold up. They're going to give you all of these little breadcrumbs about things that have burned them in the past, which gives you as a salesperson an opportunity to say, all right, well, let me tell you how we might or let's talk about how we might introduce this to your organization in a way that minimizes that risk. Like now that we appreciate how things have gone in the past when they've gone poorly or even better when they go well, let's see if we can follow a similar playbook to ensure that you're not taking as much personal risk as you have in the past and let us arm you with everything you need to go recruit others in your organization to get on board. Sometimes when I'm giving presentations on, on friction theory, I use a lot of B2C examples, like a product being sold to a consumer or an idea being sold to an end customer and end user. And the question always comes up, like, you know, very early on, you know, how does this apply to B2B? And what I'll often say to people is we make this distinction that B2B and B2C are these radically different things. And we forget that like Bs are really just a bunch of Cs clustered together. And you might sell to like that one initial customer, but they have a bunch of other people that they need to convince. And there's a bunch of other people whose frictions need to be addressed. It's a more complicated sale, but understanding the human conditions that stand in the way of that progress, that's no different from B2B or B2C. It's just you have more of them to deal with.
1: Still people. Yeah. And, you know, this all inertia, effort, emotion, this all... It's just human response. It is,
0: but the the problem that we well, I shouldn't say the problem. I mean, one of the the things, one of the highest compliments we receive on this book is like, wow, this makes so much sense. And like, we're like, great. Like, that's what we're hoping is that that once you learn these tools and once you see the world through the lens of friction, it will be kind of impossible not to see it that way. But what one of the mistakes we make is is innovators is that we sort of lump all resistance together. Like, oh, I'm getting resistance from this buyer. Well, what kind of resistance? Is it effort-related resistance or is it inertia-related resistance? Because depending on which one of those it is, the solutions to those challenges are totally different. Is it reactance or is it emotion? And so what we're hoping to do is get people to diagnose the actual specific types of friction they're encountering. Because once you know which friction it is, the remedies that, that address those things become pretty self-evident
1: this is after you know we've got a product that people will want to buy we've got a clear value proposition and yet they're still not buying it correct I mean it, I mean when people say we've got resistance from a buyer I mean it might be your product's still crap the value propositions still not any good right you've got to make sure that that's not true first
0: that's, that's exactly right I mean the framework we use to introduce the whole idea of friction theory is fuel and friction there are two forces at play like two higher order forces. Fuel are all of the forces that propel somebody to change, right? The recognition that the status quo is no longer working and that a change will need to be made. There is a problem that needs to be addressed. There are features and benefits of the solution that you're providing that address those problems. It's clearly a need that we're looking for. All of those are forces that get people to consider change. Those are essential, like fuel is essential. But what we find is that most people ignore the other side, which are the forces that stand in the way. Even though I know what, what we're doing today is not working, and even though you've got a good solution, there are still things that give me doubt about whether or not I should adopt this or not. Now, you can remove all of the friction from that one side, but if there's no fuel propelling somebody to change, nobody's going to do anything because there's no need, there's no motivation. So we say that fuel is essential. Like you need to have a reason to want to change. And if that doesn't exist, removing all the friction in the world isn't going to solve the problem because there's no forward momentum anyway. It's sort of like when you throw a ball or when a plane takes off or you shoot an arrow from from a bow, that forward momentum is required for that object to take flight. But all of the gravity it's resisting that's pulling on it, all of the wind resistance it encounters, all of the crosswind that's blowing it off course those are the things that we're trying to address with friction theory. It's not the initial propelling of the idea. It's removing all of those extrinsic forces that will stand in its way.
1: And if you take this friction more broadly to managing change inside organizations rather than in a sales context or, you know, in an entrepreneur trying to create a successful business. I mean, when I was reading the book, I thought the reactant stuff, it's not new. Mm -hmm. And yet you still see people, you know, saying, Well, I told them what to do, and I'm just and I'm still surprised that they haven't done it. As opposed to getting them on side and understanding and, you know, that sort of co-creation That's right. of of the plan. I, I see it and you know, we we promote sole contributors to managers, we give them nothing, and yet when they start trying to get their teams to do stuff, they run headlong into this all the time. People resist being told what to do. Yeah, I mean it's the best
0: salespeople. In fact, we talk about it. The, the, one of the beginning stories in this book is about, and, and we can, and, and I'm going to use sales, but then we can talk about this in terms of like rolling out strategy or like convincing your kid. That, like it works. It works with 12 year olds. It works with 72 year olds. This is just a human condition. Now, I should also say, uh, assuming that that your your audience is somewhat global, these frictions vary from culture to culture. So, like. As an entrepreneur in the United States, I might feel a higher appetite for risk and I might not worry about the failure of my business and what that means for my my immediate family and how that reflects my community. The, the emotional friction of starting a business, for example, for me in the United States might be lower than somebody who wants to start a business in Asia or start a business in parts of the Middle East where the emotional risk of starting a business is way higher and the cost of failure, the emotional cost of failure is significantly greater. So even though these frictions are universally human conditions, the amplitude of them varies depending on where you find yourself in the world. And this is also true of reactants. There are some cultures where if the government tells you like, hey, you should stop doing this, people will probably stop doing whatever that is. Now, that is not the United States. (laughs) <laughs> the government can tell you a bunch of stuff and, and people are like, no, thank you. Like, not for me, like getting a vaccine or whatever it might be.
1: Yeah. Wearing a seatbelt
0: right or seatbelt yeah perfect example so there is variance in this from 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 culture to culture but one of the things that we know from from reactance and going back to the beginning of this book is the more that you can involve people in the process of change the less it feels like you imposing an idea upon me and more like we're designing this idea together and going back to sales, one of the introductory stories we tell at the beginning of this book is about the most successful car salesperson in in the world. His name is Ali Reda, and he is in suburban Detroit, Michigan, and he single-handedly sells more cars as an individual than most dealerships in the country. And the way he views his job, I mean, he is a salesperson, like that is his title, But he doesn't view his job as sales. He views his job as systematically removing the friction that stands in the way of something somebody already wants to do. Like they come into the car dealership, they clearly want a new car. They realize their current car isn't going to work for much longer. So They've already opted into the idea of considering something new. Yes, he can tell you features and benefits. Yes, he can tell. But some of that stuff you've probably learned online, he views his job as how to remove the hesitation that stands in the way. And that's all about removing those four frictions that we talked about. This is also true of leadership and strategy change. You might say to your company, like, all right, you know, it's time to be be more innovative. It's time to be more customer focused, which is something a lot of companies are saying right now, but that carries with it a ton of ambiguity. That carries a ton of inertia-related friction. Now you're asking people who've been working a certain way for the last several years to change the way they work. Most people's reaction to the idea of changing how they work is first and foremost going to be to be like, all right, how is this a problem for me? They're going to start evaluating where the likely negatives are before they lean into the positives. So the first reaction is going to be like, no thanks, I'm cool the way that I am. Second reaction is going to be like, all right, well, if I'm bought into the idea that we should be more customer focused, how exactly do I do that? Like what day of the week do you want me to start focusing on customers? What should I stop doing to start doing that? And a lot of company executives make, I think the very the very big mistake of unveiling these lofty corporate ambitions about we're going to be more innovative, we're going to be more customer focused, we're going to be more whatever it is. They don't give people a roadmap to get from the present to the future that they're trying to build. They don't remove the ambiguity of how they're going to do it. And they also don't realize that the very first time an organization hears a new strategy for the first time, the reaction of their people is most always going to be, first and foremost, how is this going to be a problem for me? Before they're like, yep, this makes a lot of sense. So recognizing what human behavior is likely to dictate How might leaders be more thoughtful about introducing strategies in a way that removes friction from their introduction versus what most people do is inadvertently exacerbate it by like revealing strategies at all hands and coming up with these big nebulous goals with no roadmap to get from present to future.
1: And so that's the work with the employees to find out what those specific implications are for them.
0: But this goes back. Yes. I mean, to some, in some cases, yes, this goes back to what are the likely frictions? There's going to be inertia. Right, So one of the ways that we overcome inertia is to make unfamiliar ideas feel more familiar. There's a couple of ways we can do that. One of them is simply time and exposure. The more you hear about something, the less of a foreign invader it becomes. The more you're exposed to something, the less you dislike it. So like, if you think back to the first time that you tried coffee or beer, If I had asked you, Dominic, like the very first time you tried coffee or espresso, like, are you today having tried this one time, are you ready to commit to being a lifetime espresso drinker? Your reaction most likely is probably like, yeah, no, let me let me let me keep trying it and see if I if I get used to it. It's the same with strategy. Right. The first time somebody hears a new idea, they might conceptually be on board with it. But. Their first reaction is probably going to be like, all right, well, this is going to involve some some pain for me. I'm not sure I'm ready to get on board with it yet, but the more they learn about it, the more they hear about it, the more it's socialized, the more that new idea becomes more of a familiar idea. And sometimes simply time and exposure can create a difference. But but think about how we typically do it, which is corporate management teams or, or executive teams spend months designing the new strategy. They design the new marketing campaign. They design the new whatever. And they've had... Six months or a year to get used to it, but then they reveal it to the organization and expect everybody to get on their feet and start applauding.
1: And then they never talk, And and then they never repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. I mean, they never
0: repeat, and then they also never socialize or lay a trail of breadcrumbs early, saying, "Hey, we want to give you the highlights of what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about this. And we're going to." It's always going to experience a little bit of discomfort when it's introduced, but the more exposure people have to it, the less abrupt and the less of a reaction it's likely to generate. I mean, this is, I don't know if this is actually what's happening in, in the state of Israel right now, but I was reading today that the, the parliament passed this very controversial judicial law that has been talked about for about a year. If you remember, this was first discussed and was a big issue back in the springtime where Netanyahu was like talking about this radical judicial reform and every week there was a big protest in Tel Aviv and every week people were were marching in the streets. And then it went quiet for a while. He withdrew the vote and it it went quiet for like four or five months from like April till just now. So whatever that is, four months. People still knew it was likely to be coming. But it was basically a dormant issue, and then all of a sudden, in the last couple weeks, it got revived again. And yes, there were protests, but I do wonder if part of the strategy of, of the Likud government was to just let the idea of this reform hang out in people's consciousness just so that the unfamiliar idea became a little bit more familiar and then hoping that when it was introduced six months later, it encountered less friction than it might have otherwise encountered if it had been rammed through at the very beginning. Who knows? And then there's always going to be people that resist that legislation. And I'm not offering a point of view on its merits or not merits. But I do wonder if there is somebody in the Israeli government or in, in the parliament or is part of his kitchen cabinet that said, you know what? The longer we let this issue marinate in the public domain, when we introduce it, some of the bite will go out of it because it will even though we might not agree with it it'll be a more familiar piece of legislation. They've read your book and they're
1: following your playbook.
0: Well, let's let's not go there. But but I am wondering like we're sort of I read about it this morning when I woke up that it passed last night. And it had occurred to me like I wonder if there was something strategic about letting this idea hang out for a while where the hope was that the longer it hung out the more known it would be in the less inertia-related friction it might encounter. Now, it's not going to affect everybody, but I wonder if there's some people who are like, you know, the country will still function, the government will still function, maybe it's not as dramatic as we once thought. Now, Again, I'm not offering a point of view on the legislation. I have a point of view on the legislation, but I do wonder if that was... People can just get tired of that, of a thing. People can get tired of a thing, I think. But again, I mean, our first reaction to any new piece of legislation or any new leadership is that the world is going to go upside down and surely this is going to be bad. And sometimes the longer we are marinating on an idea, the longer we think about it, the more exposure we have to it, the less dramatic that friction years to be.
1: I was coaching somebody using that today, having read your book, and they are pitching, they want some resources for a project. And so I said, what is the upside of this project? And they said, $12 million. And I said, okay, here's one of the things you might do every single time you have a conversation with anybody who might be part of that decision-making process. You just say, this project's worth $12 million. I said, because eventually they will believe it's worth $12 million, even if today they don't. They don't know anything about your project. Carthage must be destroyed. You know, sometimes the
0: more people get used to an idea, the more it becomes like an accepted idea. Carthage must be destroyed going back to, to Rome. And it's not to say that this is worth $12 million if I keep repeating it to you, that all of a sudden, you know, you're not going to be able to show me the model that supports that. But people will get used to the, more used to the idea that that should be the anchor value, the more that they, the more that they hear about it.
1: So we'll see whether it works for him. I'm looking, uh, it'll be an interesting thing. He said he's probably making that point, but not in the same way to everybody all the time. And so he sees value immediately in trying the technique
0: But I would also say that we talk about fuel and friction. Talking about the upside is a very fuel-based, still a sort of fuel-based approach to it. Like, look at all the value you're going to have when you adopt it. Look at all the value that's going to be created once this is on board. The other thing that we would do to put it more in a friction lens is to ask this individual, hey, the last time you tried to convince the organization that something was maybe worth more than they might have believed, how did you do that? Like, what did you do? What hesitations did you personally have and did the rest of the organization have? that led them to experience that resistance and how did you overcome it? And whatever he tells you or she tells you is likely to be a little bit of a a path for you to follow in terms of, all right, well, it took a long time for them to get used to it. All right, great. So repetition and familiarity is a thing. It took the, 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 the company who was selling it creating a model that showed the economic value that used inputs from us. Okay, great. So now you're asking me to remove effort from you as the champion to create the model and have me help you create the model, which will make your life easier. And finally, There was a six month trial period where we got to find out whether or not the value we were promised is actually the value that was realized. And so now you understand there's some emotional friction. Great. Why don't we create a six month check in point where if it's not delivering what you think it's supposed to deliver in the time, then we'll modify the agreement or we'll go back and think about how to do it differently. But now what you're doing is you're removing bits of friction from the process, assuming that somebody over there is nodding their head saying, you know, this is probably something we ought to try.
1: I also think the example that you give of legalizing cannabis, where it's you know who could not want to give cannabis to cancer patients? I mean, you'd be you'd be a terrible person if you didn't agree with that. And then and then maybe we could give marijuana to people who don't have cancer but have something else. And, and ultimately, you take people on this journey. And I think often inside, certainly larger organisations, you want to they're, they're people are trying to influence, and it's that sort of you got to. What, what's the thing we could win, or what's an experiment we could get people to agree to, then that will then take them on this journey. And just even that sort of breaking it all down and going, where do we start, can be really, really helpful. And
0: the word you just used is an important word, which is experiment. We go, this goes back to the beginning when we were talking about entrepreneurship. When companies roll out policies, policies feel permanent. When companies roll out a strategy, there's a certain sense, sense of permanence to the strategy. But if you say, look, we've got a hunch about what's going to work. Let's try it as an experiment for three months and see. All of a sudden that takes some of the friction out of it because it's not a whole scale policy change. It's an experiment and experiments can be undone. Experiments can be modified. And so you're removing some of that inertia. You're removing some of that emotional friction because you've now framed something as like, let's just see how it goes. And now everybody's like the, the intensity of it is dialed down because it's not permanent change it's just something we're going to try
1: yeah david what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier
0: well, I mean, I think that, that the book is the perfect manifestation of that. We wrote this book because I could not, for the life of me, figure out why entrepreneurs and why, why customers weren't saying yes to the, these wonderful ideas that entrepreneurs were creating. What I wish I'd known is that there's this whole world of friction hiding in plain sight that is constantly undermining our best efforts to create change and innovation. And now that I've seen the world through this lens, Like, there's so many things I would have done differently in my career, either at IDEO or in the venture space or as an entrepreneur, that I can only
1: look back on and say, like, man,
0: had I known then what I know now, I would have done this radically differently.
1: Ah, brilliant. And other than the human element, what should people pick up and read? What are your... You know, I had a couple thoughts about this
0: just in terms of like thinking, this happens all the time, like what books would you recommend? I I have people ask me this. And depending on who I'm talking to, the answer changes. I'm gonna give you maybe three. Number one, I love Todd Rose's The End of Average. Uh, I think it's a phenomenal book. He is a statistician and data scientist. And it talks about basically debunking some of the myths of statistics in terms of how we design for others. There's no such thing as the average person. Yet so many of our models are designed to serve the average. But literally, there is no such thing as an average person. So the very models we use in data sometimes confound how we think about design. So I love that book. Demand-Side Sales by Bob Mesta. Bob is one of the architects of jobs to be done, and this book is less well-known than Clay Christensen's book, Competing Against Luck, but Bob offers this really awesome toolkit for how we think about jobs to be done, particularly as it relates to the process of sales, just sort of building off of what we were talking about today. And then a book that I come to again and again every few years, just because of the humanity of it, is Viktor Frankl's A Man's Search for Meaning. There aren't very many books. In fact, I think this is the only book that I just sort of try to build a habit around like every few years, read it again. And I, I, I just feel like in the world of innovation and design, it's always important to remember that at the end of every product, at the end of every service, at the end of every business model is a human. And those humans have lots of different complexities and lots of different emotions. And if we don't factor those into how we think about people, sometimes we, despite our best efforts, will be unsuccessful. So just remember to think about the whole human.
1: Very good. David, it's been an absolute pleasure talking today. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did.